It is my privilege to uh, teach God's word with this class this morning. I have been tremendously blessed by the study of God's word, and I hope that you are blessed by the delivery as we study it together. We have quite a few verses to get through today. Rod, thank you very much for giving me some extra time. I appreciate it. <coughs> We're in Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 44. We'll get started by way of introduction. And as I did last time, I will just cover very quickly <coughs> so that we can set a context for ourselves what's going on by way of reminder. Our study this morning takes place on Wednesday of the Passion Week. On Monday, people shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest, they shouted, as they ushered Jesus into Jerusalem. On Friday, those shouts of praise turned into shouts of death, sadly. Those same people shouted instead of Hosanna, crucify, crucify him. That, that wave changed very quickly and very suddenly. But Wednesday, Wednesday is the turning point in the Passion Week. Now, to be sure, the events that occur on Monday and Tuesday of the Passion Week, they, they, they served, they served to, to add some flame to the already existing fire. For example, the cursing of the fig tree, the, the temple cleansing, the clash with Jewish leaders over Jesus' authority. All of these events contributed to the growing animus against Jesus. But it's, it's Wednesday, Wednesday and the events that happen on Wednesday that provide the proverbial straws that break the camel's back. The parable of the vine growers, which Jeff taught us about last week, very well, by the way, is really the start. It's the first straw because the Jewish leaders are aware that Jesus is indicting them in that parable. They understood that they were the vine growers and that Jesus was the chief cornerstone and they were guilty of rejecting him. Our study this morning takes place on the heels of that parable that Jeff covered last week. And verse 12 of chapter 12 sets a stage for us very nicely. Look at verse 12 with me. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away. It's important that we understand as we navigate our study this morning that that last phrase there, went away, is temporary. They, they do go away, but they go away temporarily. Their initial plan didn't pan out as they had planned, as they had hoped. And so they have to convene or reconvene and devise a new plan to take out Jesus. Their new plan plays out in our study this morning. Their new plan includes three attempts to trap Jesus. 
Each attempt is made by differing groups within the Jewish religious leadership. And all three attempts come by way of questions. With that set as our context, let's jump into the first point this morning, a question on taxes. Verses 13 through 17, read these verses with me if you would. Then they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. First subpoint here in our outline, the group sent. By the way, this will be a common first subpoint, just to foreshadow for you guys a little bit. <coughs> the group sent. Verse 13 starts off by telling us that they sent. The they there refers to the Sanhedrin, the group of 71 religious leaders. I wish I had the time to go into detail on the Sanhedrin, but if you were here last week, Jeff did a wonderful job of providing great detail regarding the Sanhedrin and how they were made up, how they were composed. I encourage that if you were not here last week, you go back and listen to Jeff's lesson to gain that detail because time just doesn't allow me to go into the detail of the Sanhedrin. But suffice it to say, they are composed of 71 religious leaders. 71, that, that last one, the 71st, is the high priest at that time. And these religious leaders have different backgrounds. Some of them are Pharisees, some of them are Sadducees, some of them are scribes, and some of them didn't belong to any of those groups. They were just religious leaders that were part of the Sanhedrin. They are the ones that control everything in Israel, and they are the ones that send this first group to Jesus. Verse 13 also tells us <clears throat> that it is a combination of Pharisees and Herodians that are sent to Jesus. This is the classic case of the adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Anybody ever hear that before? Take, it took me a long time to feel the, the enemy of my enemy. But I finally got it, and I understood it, and I had an aha moment. And, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what's going on. That's exactly what's going on. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Pharisees were lawyers and experts in the law. The, the Herodians, on the other hand, were a group of Jews that had aligned themselves with a group known as, cleverly, the Herods. The Herods ruled over Israel. They were acting kings. They were detested by all of Israel. And they were detested because they had aligned themselves with Rome 
in order to obtain their ruling power. They were also detested because they constantly ruled unjustly to serve their own interests or the interests of Rome and often both those interests, but never the interests of the people. The only thing that would ever unite these two groups was something or someone that threatened their power and stranglehold over Israel. In this case, Jesus did exactly that, and therefore this unusual union is formed. In order to trap him in a statement, verse 13 tells us that last part of verse 13 ends by offering the reason for this unusual union. Notice that we're told that they are sent in order to trap him in a statement. That's why they are sent. The unusual union is formed. They are sent in order to trap him in a statement. The goal is to trap Jesus in his words. Some translations, maybe you've read some of these translations, instead of using trap, say catch. Catch him in his words. Whether it's trap or catch, neither of those words do the Greek word here any justice. They're not strong enough. Trap here implies violence. And even violence by death is the idea. The Pharisees and the Herodians are not on a catch and release mission here. They are on a catch or trap mission to kill, to eliminate Jesus once and for all. Move on to our second subpoint. This morning, the question posed, verses 14 and the first part of 15. In verse 14, they attempt to use flattery with the use of words like teacher and truthful. Look what they say. You defer to no one. You're not partial to any. You teach the way of God in truth. Flattery is is often used as a way to convince someone to, to join your side, and that is undoubtedly what they are doing. Teacher is a term of respect. And Jesus was a teacher. He was a rabbi. That's the word there. He was a rabbi. But the fact that they are calling him teacher must have been devastating to them. And, and more than that, they go on to say that they know that he is truthful and that he defers to no one and not partial to any and teaching the way of God and truth. You ever give a compliment to somebody that you just really didn't mean to give the compliment to? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but if you have, you would know that uttering the words is a difficult thing. I, I tell you that from what I've heard from others, not from personal experience. But <clears throat> essentially, those phrases, truthful, defer to no one, no partial, not partial to any, teach the way of God in truth, those phrases are used by the Herodians and the Pharisees to state to Jesus himself that he is a man of integrity who is unwilling to compromise on matters related to the gospel and his personal ethics. That's what they're saying to him. Now, this was true of Jesus, but 
I'm telling you, they hated every minute of having to say it to him because they didn't mean it themselves. They were saying what was true. They just didn't believe it. In the last part of verse 14, they posed the first part of their question to Jesus. And in the first part of verse 15, they posed the second part of their question. A poll tax is what's in view here. Poll tax was paid once a year, and it was imposed on every person in Israel, child and adult alike. The tax cost one denarius, which was a day's wage. So once a year, everybody in Israel would pay one denarius. Most Jews hated paying taxes, period. Anybody relate? Yeah. Most Jews hated paying taxes, period, but... But this poll tax, they hated especially. This, this poll tax was detested especially by all Jews alike. And it was because of the unjust nature of the tax. It was a tax not on income, not on property, not on anything justifiable. It was a tax on simply being. That's it. They were taxed for simply being. It was Rome's way of reminding Israel that they were Rome's property once a year. And they were going to do what Rome demanded of them. So the question was a controversial one. And it would definitely sway public opinion of a person depending on their answer. Here's the horns of, of the question that Jesus is dealing with. If Jesus responds in the affirmative and advocates paying the tax, he loses the, the support of the crowd. And if he loses the support of the crowd based on what we read in verse 12, he can no longer, the, 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 the Jewish leaders find it easy to kill him at that point. If he responds in the negative, and advocates not paying the tax, the Herodians and their cozy relationship with Rome, they would run immediately to Rome and say, you've got a problem with this man, Jesus. He's got an enormous following, and we have to take following, excuse me, and we have to take him out immediately. They're looking to put him between a rock and a hard place. There seems to be no out for Jesus. Leads us to our Next point, the unexpected response, verses 15b through 17. Jesus sees right through them. In verse 15, he knows their hypocrisy and asks why they test him in this way, to which, of course, they have no response. Everybody knows why, but they don't respond. This display of omniscience should have been enough once again once again, because this is not the first time that he displays his omniscience, but this display of omniscience should have been enough for them to turn from their wicked ways and cry out for forgiveness and repent of their sin. But they don't. He continues in verse 15 and asks for a denarius. Jesus didn't have money. It's very interesting that he has to ask for a denarius because he didn't carry any money. So they have to go find a denarius and they bring it to him. And in verse 16, he asks the Pharisees and the Herodians whose image is on the denarius to which they respond, Caesar's. Now, which Caesar would it have been? 
during the time of Jesus, Tiberius was in power. And so the image of Tiberius Caesar would have been on this denarius. And it would have read, Tiberius Caesar, son of God, on that denarius. Because to the Romans, Caesars were deities. They said Caesars. And in verse 17, Jesus really gets to the point of the matter. He tells the, the Herodians and the Pharisees and everybody else listening, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, look, pay the tax. Pay the tax. Government is God-ordained. Pay the tax. Is it unjust? Yes, it's unjust. But in so doing, and he knows he's not speaking to believers, but in so doing, you, 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 show, you show your obedience to God. Pay the tax when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But the heart of the matter and the, the more important thing is the second part of verse 17, where he says, and to God, the things that are God's. That was the important thing. Essentially, he's saying, look, you're, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You got it wrong. You're thinking about this all wrong. Your problem is earthly, and you've got a heavenly problem that should be a bigger worry for you. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God, more importantly, the things that are God's. So for this point, I have a specific takeaway. I thought a lot about this passage this week. I thought a lot about this section. I asked myself questions like, how could the Pharisees and the Herodians miss their last chance at repentance? Why would they pick their false religious system over God himself? But the question that, that was a pebble in my shoe the whole week and that I want to share with you this morning is the following. Whose image do I bear? And whose image do you bear? Humanity bears the indelible image of their creator, God. Whether you're Christian or you're not Christian here this morning, I don't know your heart, but I assure you, you bear the image of your creator. And Jesus calls the Herodians and the Pharisees, and he calls us to render, yes, to Caesar what is Caesar's, but more importantly, to render or willingly surrender to God what is his. And what is that? What is God's? Just everything. Our lives, our liberty, our possessions, our love, our family, everything. And so I leave you with this question here for this first point. Are we rendering to God what is God's? Remember that we bear his image. Ask yourself, are we rendering to him what belongs to him rightfully? It is a piercing question, but one that I hope stays with you as, is, as it has stayed with me this whole week. We move on. Second point this morning. Question on the resurrection, verses 18 through 27. Read these verses with me. 
Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. That seems to be the mercy kill for the woman. <coughs> That's okay. You can laugh. It's all right. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. First subpoint is the same as <coughs> the one in the first point, the group sent. Verse 18 tells us who the group is. It is the Sadducees. Now, it's interesting in the first point, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were often fighting with one another. If the Pharisees were considered the conservative group, the Sadducees were considered the liberal group of the religious leaders. They, they were considered liberal for several reasons, but one of the reasons was that they only credited the Torah. In other words, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as Scripture inspired by God. That was the word of God according to the Sadducees. They accepted nothing else as inspired word of God. Their preferred leader was Moses. To them, Moses was right behind God. He was their hero. Because they found no teaching in the Torah regarding the doctrine of the resurrection, they rejected the resurrection outright. This is the group that is sent to pose the second question to Jesus to try to trap him. Notice the second subpoint in our outline, the appeal to Moses in verse 19. Prior to posing their question to Jesus, they appealed to their great leader, Moses, as a basis for their question. They think, well, surely if we, if we start off with the fact that Moses said, he'll have to entertain the question is the thought there in verse 19. This leads us to our third point, the example. And it's a kind of silly example that they come up with. Their, their example is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Jot that down in your notes. Again, I wish we had time to, to visit these verses, but we, we simply don't today. Their example is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. And Deuteronomy 25 refers to what is known as leveret marriage. How many of us have ever heard of leveret marriage? Okay, all right. 
Sounds good. You're going to hear about it today. Levirate marriage was established by God and confirmed in his law. Here's the basic idea of leveret marriage. It was used or established by God to provide descendants for a man who died childless so that his family could maintain its property. Get that? The reason God establishes leveret marriage is so that a man's name does not disappear in Israel. And his family is able to maintain their property. There was a reason for leveret marriage. The problem with the example that they posed to Jesus is that it necessitated personal knowledge of heaven, which they did not have. They ignored that point. They ignored that point. They don't know what they're talking about, which leads us to the next point, the question posed in verse 23. In posing the question, the Sadducees seem to hope that Jesus looks silly in front of the crowd when he is unable to answer their question. Think about what they're saying. She can't be wife to seven men at once, right? But conversely, if she's wife to only one, then what about her marriage to the others? That's what they were going to say. Their hope is that Jesus either is unable to answer and thereby, thereby proving that he is not God, or Jesus provides a nonsensical answer, thereby undermining his credibility and loses once again the support of the crowd. A third possibility should have entered their mind, but it didn't. The possibility is this. He, Jesus, really is who he says he is, and we're about to ask a question to God of which we know nothing about. Should have thought about it, but didn't. Leads us to our following point, the heavenly response. Jesus responds uh, first in verse 24 that they are mistaken. In other words, what's he saying there? You are mistaken. That's a nice way of saying, you have no idea what you're talking about, fools. That's what I would have said. But he says, you are mistaken. They have no idea what they're talking about. Why are they mistaken? Verse 24 also tells us that it's because they don't, <coughs> excuse me, they don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, let me just say here quickly, lest, lest we judge too harshly, that we should remember that we're prone to this error ourselves. It's not exaggeration, and it shouldn't be novel when I say to you that 100% of Christian conflict when it comes to Scripture has to do with a lack of understanding of Scripture and the power of God. Whether it be I or you or them, we speak, we speak excuse me, out of ignorance because we don't know what we're talking about. We, we're lazy at times in the study of God's word and blurt stuff out and create conflict that way just like they did here. Jesus does know what he's talking about. That's the difference. In verse 25, he provides them and us with a view into life in heaven post-resurrection. 
And he conveys to them in verse 25 that marriage will no longer exist, but instead, what does he say at the end of verse 25? We will be like the angels. And how is that? Well, they're created beings, but, but they have perfect knowledge and they have perfect understanding and, and they worship the Lord perfectly in endless joy all day, every day. We will be like the angels. Let me clarify, just in case somebody heard something I did not say, which happens from time to time. I am not saying this morning that marriage is bad and will therefore be removed in heaven. No, that is not what I am saying. Marriage is ordained by God and it is good. Let me repeat that. It is good. Pastor MacArthur said to the single people in his church while he was preaching this sermon, if you're not married, find someone, anyone, and get married. It's good advice. But in heaven, the need for procreation will no longer exist. And we will have perfect union with God. And so therefore, the need for marriage simply goes away. That's why it doesn't exist. The answer is unexpected, to say the least. And in verse 26, Jesus underscores an important fact about the resurrection and turns the tables on the Sadducees by using Moses as the basis for the fact that he tells them. He refers to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 and verse 26. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, when God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, and God says to Moses the following, I am the God of your father, he says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus' point here in verse 26 is simple to understand, but it is piercing to the heart. God would not refer to himself in this manner if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were still dead is the point Jesus is making. And he solidifies that point in verse 27 by saying God is not the God of the dead. God is the God of the alive, of course, of the live, excuse me. Of course, the resurrection is true. Of course, we will be lifted up after death. And what's striking about this is that they had seen people come back to life from death. These Sadducees, in life, they had seen it. <laughs> and with a straight face, they still say, no, resurrection, no, doesn't, doesn't exist, can't happen. The, the, the depths of sin and the way it entrenches us in positions that have no basis whatsoever is astonishing. So it is my prayer that we would guard against that in our hearts. We would guard against entrenching ourselves in such sinful positions that we are blinded even to the obvious around us. I don't pretend to be better than these men I and you are saved, not because we were better than them, simply because God's grace reached us because he willed it that way. And I am humbled by that very thought. I hope you are too. 
I don't judge them. I feel badly for them. But I want to be careful not to allow myself to repeat this error. And I want to encourage you not to allow yourself to repeat that error either. Move on to the third point. Question on the commandments. First sub point there is a group sent. Now I kept this group sent because it just, you know, it was the same one as the prior two points. But in this case, it's not a group that is sent. It's a guy. Read verses 28 uh, through 34 with me. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And that's probably the best idea they've had so far. As I said in the first point, the group is not a group. It's a guy in this case. It's a scribe. I've talked to you about the Pharisees. I've talked to you about the Herodians. I've talked to you about the Sadducees. Let me just say a few things about the scribes. Scribes were responsible for copying scripture and also interpreting it from a religious perspective they were fastidious i love that word they were fastidious maybe you did well in school and if you did you and i had not would not have gotten along because i didn't do well and particularly i was annoyed to a sinful degree as a kid by the kid who would raise their hand when the teacher forgot to give the homework assignment and would remind the teacher of the homework assignment. And if you are that kid or were that kid growing up, you should repent of your sin. <laughs> Just kidding. I say that to you because that, this, this is the scribes. That's the scribes. They were those kids. They were those people. They were fastidious about stuff, but they had to be. They had to be that way because they were responsible for copying every letter of every word as they translated God's word. And so you better be fastidious. You don't want Edwin Galindo translating God's word. There would be entire sections missing once my brain gets tired. But they were different. That was the scribes. The second point is the question posed. 
by this scribe. In verses 28, uh, uh, sections B and C, the second part of verse 28 provides us with the scribe's question. And given the fact that he was a scribe, his question is one he would have been quite familiar with already. But though he knows the answer to the question, he poses it to test Jesus. Don't forget, he is there to test Jesus. The hope likely being here that Jesus would answer incorrectly. Once again, thereby proving he was imperfect and therefore not God and lose the support of the crowd, making it easier to kill him. This leads us to the, pl- the uh, third point, the final interaction. In verse 29, verses 29 and 30, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. That's why it's all capital letters. He is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This section of Scripture is known as the Shema. The Shema. The Shema in Hebrew, or Shema in Hebrew, means to hear. And look at verse 29 very quickly. How does he start? Hear, O Israel. That's why this section is called the Shema. It's Hebrew for hear. Jesus adds mind here. You should know this. As a fourth dimension of the Shema. Making a couple of things clear. One, that we are to love God with the fullness of all of our understanding. He, wor- he adds mind. If you go to Deuteronomy, the word mind is not there. Jesus adds mind as a fourth dimension there. He does it to underscore the fact that we should, we should love our God with our entire understanding, but he does it also just to let them know, I am God, and I have the authority to add to my own word if I so choose to. The claim to deity that, that, that was not lost on them, to be sure. In verse 31, Jesus quotes once again from the Old Testament. This time it's Leviticus 19.18. It's interesting that Jesus adds love for neighbor as part of the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is, is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. But, but he adds Leviticus 19.18. It's interesting that Jesus adds love for neighbor as part of the greatest commandment. In Matthew's parallel passage, Jesus says that these two commandments summarize the law and the prophets, Matthew twenty-two, forty. Now, this is important, and I bring it to your attention because for the first time, two separate commandments are combined by Jesus. Now, understand, this, it doesn't become like a hybrid commandment. Please, please don't misinterpret what Jesus is doing here. It's not a hybrid commandment now. No, it, it's still the Shema is, is the greatest commandment. But Jesus is adding as a secondary component to that commandment, 
Love for neighbor. And this is important. And it's important because Jesus is here saying that the greatest evidence of love for God is manifested in our love for neighbor. Did you get that? The greatest way that I prove to God and to others that I love God the way I am supposed to is when I love my neighbor the way I am called to in Scripture. It is the greatest evidence of my love for God. That is what Jesus is saying. In verses 32 and 33, the scribe affirms Jesus' response. And this is not insignificant because he was sent to trap Jesus. He wasn't sent to affirm Jesus. It would be like when I send one of my boys to get something and they get something entirely different and I have to bite my tongue with what I really want to say. The, the, the Sanhedrin, I'm sure, is sitting there like, what are you we sent you to trap him, not to agree with him, but something has occurred inside of him. He, he is left with no choice but to agree with Jesus because it's not simply a man speaking to him. It's the very God in flesh speaking to him. And when God speaks, we have no choice but to affirm what he is saying. What is it? I'm being recorded, so I'm not going to, but you should turn that off. In verse 34, Jesus tells the scribe that he is not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe is ever so close to salvation, but remains so distant because he refuses to turn away from his sin. Did you get that? You ever been there? So close, yet so far. So close to salvation, but you're so far. This leads us to the next point here. David's son is David's Lord. I took this, this is not my imagination or my thought here. This is Robert Charles Sproul. Probably my favorite preacher. This is his uh, thinking. I, I stole it from him because he's dead and he can't say anything anymore. <laughs> David's son is David's Lord. 35 through 37. Read these verses. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said to the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. There's, there's really... This whole section from 35 down through 44 is one section. I broke it down to make it a little easier to digest, but it's, it's really one section, and it's, it's a final indictment. You have to understand, verses 35 through 44 
are the last words that Jesus utters to anyone outside of his 12. This is it. This is it. And though it may sound harsh, for example, verses 35 through 37, it, it's, it's really not. What it is is one final plea from a loving father to his people. I don't know if you can recall as a kid doing something where you know you deserved the wrath of a parent. But, but instead, <coughs> you received mercy. It, it is an indescribable feeling to receive mercy when you deserve wrath. And that's what's going on here. They, they deserve wrath. The first time they rejected Jesus, they deserved wrath. They don't get it. This is the last time that they get mercy and they reject it. Jesus' question here in verses 35 through 37 is a piercing question. And it's just one point. There's no, there's no, I'm sorry, one sub point, excuse me. It's a piercing question, and it's a piercing question because the, the, the point is obvious, isn't it? David himself said, to, said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Look at the question in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? We get what he's trying to say, right? How... How, how can David be greater than the Messiah if David calls the Messiah Lord? He's, he's trying to tell them, guys, I've proven in every which way that I am the Messiah. And yet still, you would choose David over me, and I am David's Lord. If David were here before us, he would choose me, and you are making the wrong choice. It's a, it's a plea. Turn from your sin. Let me end with that last point there, the scribes and the widow, 38 through 44. <clears throat> Let me just give you these two points so that you have them. Read 38 through 44 with me if you would. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow 
put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. They all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Rod, in that text exchange yesterday, what phrase did you use? You were surprised and you used a phrase. Remember what that was? Thank you. That's a, that's a, we've got we've got to use that. Add that to your vocabulary, to your vo- vernacular, if you would. Slack jawed. I was laughing for for a while, Rod. I love that. Rod was telling me that he was slack jawed to to find out the meaning of that last section there with the widow. We'll talk about it in just a little bit. I hope that you're just as slack jawed as me and rod about that meaning but let me talk to you about what's going on here because again it's one entire section and he's pleading with this group of religious leaders to turn from his from their sin he he asks a piercing question in verses 35 through 37 and in 38 through 44 he gives a warning an indictment really against the scribes, and then an example. He says about the scribes, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses. This is the connection. Please pay special attention here. Who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers these will receive greater condemnation. Just a few comments about verses 38 and 39. It's a description of what had become the religious leader's false system. They were not interested in God. They were not interested in leading the people to God. They were not interested in anything spiritual. They were interested purely, purely in walking around in long robes and receiving respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets. They were concerned with the externals only. Sound like any modern-day preachers? I thought about this because <clears throat> Maggie and I grew up in a church where <laughs> the pastor, it, it was a perfect description of the pastor. And I was humbled by God's mercy taking us from, from that to this, to here. But It is a reality. It was a reality then, and it is a reality today. Wolves in sheep's clothing purporting to be something that they are not, simply to take money from people, all the while giving a bad name to true Christianity, all the while giving a bad reputation to Christians. Let me just say this morning, that is not Christianity. That is not Christianity. Anytime I'm more concerned with my externals, I'm more concerned with how you greet me and where you greet me and what honor you give me than the gospel of Jesus Christ and its serving power, I am a 
false prophet. And it needs to be said. The second part there, the widow with her giving, it's not an example of how we ought to give. It's an example of the result of the false religious system. They would have a poor widow give her last two cents, the last cents that she had to live on, and they were completely fine with it. They had lost all sense of truth. Taking, pillaging, even from what James tells us true religion actually cares for, widows and orphans. I'll, I'll end with this. The, the, the running theme of, of these verses is error and, and, and a rejection of Christ, even though he offers mercy. I don't know whether you're a Christian here today or not. I don't know whether you're saved or not. Maybe this is your first time here. Maybe this is your seventh time. I, I, I don't know. But I, I do call you, if you are not saved today, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand that Christ saves us from our sins and saves us from these very sins, the sins of false religion, the sin of self-righteousness that causes blindness spiritually, that is what Christ saves us from. And if you are a believer here today, I beg of you that you would guard your heart against self-righteousness, against false religion that has zero interest in Christ and his gospel and every interest in the externals. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your mercy and your goodness. The word is heavy today, but it is hopeful. You call to repentance, Lord, and they didn't answer that call. These Jewish leaders didn't answer that call, but I do pray that as you call to repentance today, we would answer that call, Lord, and accept your mercy, though we, re we deserve wrath. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.